Welcome again. Thank you for joining us this morning, especially if you're visiting. Uh, we're continuing in the, the book of Samuel. First and Second Samuel are really one book. Uh, we are in the part that we now call Second Samuel. We're going to read chapter 4 and a little bit into chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, the big numbers are what we call chapters. The little numbers are what we call verses. Uh, if you're using one of our blue Bibles, I think we're in the low 200s pages. 257, someone testified. Second Samuel chapter 4. <clears throat> when Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Bana, and the name of the other Rechab, sons of Remen, a man of Benjamin from Beroth. For Beroth also is counted part of Benjamin. The Barathites fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old, and the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Rimmon the Barathite, Rechab and Bana, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Bana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and they went by way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth. The son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord, this, the king, this day on Saul and on his offspring. But David answered Rechab and Bana, his brother, the sons of Rimmon the Barathite. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. When one told me, behold, Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news. I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them and cut off their hands and feet and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner at Hebron. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you have spoken to us through the ages. We thank you for the life of David. Uh, we thank you for the example that he is to us, but most of all, we thank you for the ways that he points us to your son, Jesus. May we see in David's life, uh, in what he does wonderfully, and in his failures, both of them, Lord, may we see the goodness of Jesus and why we need him so badly. For we pray in his name. Amen. Uh, I meant to say before I read that, that uh, I, I haven't done this in a couple of years, but this is one of those really juicy graphic uh, stories. Kids, if you draw a picture of anything that happens in the story, I will take a picture of it hanging up on my wall. Uh, so draw something from this. The more blood, the better. And I'll take a picture. I'll send it to you. Uh, you guys should be really proud of me because I have preached four sermons on Second Samuel about David slowly 
and painfully rising to the throne of Israel, uh, but only through the most heroic self-control over the last four weeks have I avoided bludgeoning you with quotes from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) But this week, I gave in. There's a scene early on uh, in the first book in the trilogy where the wizard Gandalf is explaining to uh, Frodo the recent history of this evil magic ring uh, that's at the heart of the whole story. Uh, Frodo's uncle Bilbo, who had it just before Frodo gets it, Bilbo got it from this despicable guy named Gollum. Uh, Frodo says to Gandalf when he hears about how Bilbo got it, Frodo says, you know, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't stab that vile creature when he had a chance. And then Gandalf says back to him, pity? It was pity that stayed his hand. Pity and mercy, not to strike without need. And then Frodo retorts back to him, I can't understand you. Do you mean to say that you have let him live after all those horrible deeds? He deserves death. Gandalf says, deserves it. I dare say he does. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them? Then do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment, for even the very wise cannot see all ends. We arrive at 2 Samuel chapter 4, where the last remaining roadblock to Israel's throne is now removed for David. Uh, Although, once again, the way that this happens is because somebody else has eagerly dealt out death and judgment towards somebody who deserves life. Uh, We see exactly what Gandalf was warning Frodo about, the well-intentioned destruction of the life of somebody who truly deserves pity. But it's not just a moral lesson for us about not getting carried away with your anger. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this uh, new uh, AI chatbot online that's pretty good. Uh, For fun, I said, write a sermon on 2 Samuel 4, and it... (laughs) wrote a very moralistic, kind of legalistic story about being a nice person and not getting too carried away with your anger. That's not what the story is really about. AI still has a long way to go in figuring out how to write my sermons for me. What this is really about is about God's king being so good. It's about wanting to be ruled by God's king because he's untainted by this murderous self-seeking because he justly deals with those who engage in it. Uh, Because that's what it means for God's king to be a good ruler over God's people and God's world. Uh, At one level, the story is about David back then. But like we've been saying at a deeper level, this is a story that's really about God's final king, Jesus. Uh, He's the good ruler who comes to show pity to the weak and justice to the wicked in a final and an ultimate and a perfect way. And so I have three headings for you today. Uh, A weak king, the enraged king, who becomes the shepherd king. Weak king, shepherd king, enraged king. So first, the weak king. Look at verses 1 to 4. So we have here Ishbosheth. This is the son of Saul. Uh, Ishbosheth is nominally the leader of the 11 remaining tribes of Israel. Uh, Even though he's Saul's son, he's really been Abner's puppet. Abner was the commander of Saul's army. We heard last week about the murder of Abner by one of David's men. Uh, now in verse 1, you see that his death has created total chaos in Saul's household. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Literally, it says Israel was terrified. Ishbosheth was nothing without Abner pushing him around. And so now that Abner's been murdered, he is terrified along with all the people. They don't know what's next. Uh, will David 
and all of his men, are they going to arrive soon with swift vengeance? Are they going to do the same thing to them that they've just heard about what happened to Abner? Uh, or is somebody else going to rise and fill this power vacuum? Ishbosheth is a weak man, but in verse 2 we hear about two strong men uh, right in Saul's orbit. The first thing you hear about these brothers is that they are captains of raiding bands. Like, wow, really tough. Talk about toxic masculinity. Uh, when these guys are not bench-pressing oxen, they're robbing the local peasantry. You hear also that they are from the tribe of Benjamin, which is Saul's home turf. And so they are from right, so they're from the right area. They, they meet that qualification. And unlike the wimpy Ishbosheth, they are super duper tough dudes. And so maybe they are going to swoop in to rescue and to secure Saul's house, especially given the state of his son Ishbosheth. Uh, to underscore the strength of these two brothers, we then get this note of contrast in verse 4 about somebody else, another weak man, except he's not quite a man, he's still a boy. This is Jonathan's son. Saul's grandson. So technically, he may have a claim to the throne, uh, but you quickly see that in reality, there's real no, really no way that he can be the king, not just because of his age, but because of his profound weakness. He's crippled in both feet. He's totally unable, therefore, to lead the armies of Israel out in battle, which a king at minimum had to do. Uh, we're told the story of his disability to help us see how truly tragic and weak he is. When he was five, his dad and his grandfather died in battle. Everybody panics when they hear about it. His nanny sweeps him up to run for it. And as she's running for it, she trips or she drops him and breaks both of his feet. He's never going to walk again. He barely even has a name. It's only after you hear about his disability that you get his name at all, Mephibosheth. Rechab and Bana are defined by their strength. Mephibosheth is defined by his disability. The house of Saul is in a sorry state. Uh, though here, the author is giving us a little bit of a prick in our minds and our memories. We need to remember how many years before, way back in the middle of 1 Samuel, David had promised his best friend Jonathan, Saul's son, the dad of Mephibosheth, uh, David had promised Jonathan that when I become king, I will always make sure that your family is taken care of. And so the mention here of Jonathan's disabled son makes us wonder about that. Will David care for him, even though he's profoundly weak. The story's going to pick up again in five or six chapters, and so you need to just keep that lodged in your mind for a few weeks until we come back to what happens with David and Mephibosheth. But the point here is to emphasize the weakness of Saul's house, which makes us wonder if these two strong brothers are going to fill the void. Verse 5, the men of action unsurprisingly make a move. The weak king is now the napping king. Uh, the two tough dudes sneak into his room during his siesta and they stab him in the stomach. If you've been keeping count, this is now the fourth man in a few chapters who's been stabbed in the stomach. Verse 7 gives us some more grisly detail. Uh, after reiterating for us, underscoring that he was completely asleep, totally vulnerable, right in the middle of his own house, it says that the two brothers kill him and then they decapitate him. Uh, it actually doesn't use the normal word for decapitate. It literally says they twisted his head off. It's very gruesome. Uh, they then take the head under the cover of darkness, carry it about 70 miles down to David's headquarters in Judah. Uh, if I was going to be sneaking somebody's decapitated head, I'd probably do it at night too. Look at verse 8, where they explain themselves to David, clearly expecting him to be thrilled with what they've done. Uh, they have neutralized his last remaining enemy. They say, David, here's the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my Lord the king this day on Saul and his offspring. Uh, 
uh, they point out that Ishbosheth is David's enemy, that he is directly connected to the psychotic king who'd been repeatedly trying to murder David. They're saying to David, life's going to be so much easier for you, David. Uh, they even introduce a flourish of theology. They bring God into it. They say, with this bloody flex, the divine Lord's own vengeance is coming to his chosen king. We are God's instruments of vengeance, David. We're doing God's work, and we're doing it for you. They call him our Lord, our king. The brothers are operating with the same mindset, the same priorities that the rest of the world does, that the rest of the world's rulers do. In terms of power and position, uh, it's an attitude that treats other people as a means to an end, that treats other people as stepping stones on the way to my own personal happiness and satisfaction. Uh, these brothers think that the only way to win is by making other people lose, that the only way to get results is to go on the war path, that the only way to go up is to shove other people down. It's how people in our world still operate, even if in our own manicured neighborhoods it rarely shows up as outright murder. And did you notice that they mean really well? We've seen this a bunch in these last two chapters, uh, people doing horrible things with very good motivations. Uh, here's how one author puts it uh, in a book I was reading recently. He says, It's in our virtuous behavior that we are liable to the gravest sins. It's while we're being good that we have the chance of being really bad. It's in the context of being responsible, being obedient, that we most easily substitute our will for God's will because it's so easy to suppose that they are identical. These two brothers have committed a great evil in the name of honoring God's king. They really think they're doing something good. We need to beware of our good intentions. We need to beware of the way that our pride and our lust and our laziness, the ways that we can take those and we can mask over them with euphemisms about love and sacrifice, about family, about safety, about health care, about dying with dignity. We can cover a lot of evil with a lot of good intentions. The weak king is now the murdered king, but at verse 9, another king returns to the scene. And this king is the enraged king. Rechab and Bana think that David's going to be thrilled to receive the rotting head of Ishbosheth, this coagulated token of a clear path to Israel's throne. But David instead is furious. Verse 9, he says, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity. The brothers have misused God's name. But David swears an oath against them rightly using God's name. He describes God as the one who has always been at work to deliver the kingdom to him as a gift. This has been one of the main themes of David's whole life. David has never had to depend on himself. It has always been clear to him and to everybody else that God is the one who is behind him, that God is the one who's fighting on behalf of him. And so over these many, many years of fleeing from Saul and now these many years of civil war, David has learned from bitter experience the very things that we read him writing all over the Psalms. They are not abstractions. These are the things that David lived. Here are two examples. David says in Psalm 37 to us, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the man who carries out evil devices. Here's another one. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and he heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction. The Lord redeemed David from every adversity. And he'll do the same for you.
You need to wait for him. You don't have to be the savior. You don't have to be the redeemer. You don't have to be the rock. You don't have to be the shield. You actually cannot be those things because only God is those things. Only God can be those things. It's very hard for us in America. We love to take action. We love to make things happen. We love to see results. We love to get her done. Most of us today probably need to hear this reminder from David's life that God will lift you up and that he'll do it in his way and in his timing. In the meantime, we need to learn to listen to God, to depend on God, to wait for God. David has learned the hard way to do these things. He's convinced of it now. And so he utterly rejects this well-intentioned attempt to force God's hand through power plays. David sees the evil of what they've done. And he responds accordingly. He says, Wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed. Shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? David submitted to God's purposes for him and his kingdom. But that does not mean that David or God now ignore or wink at sin. That they don't care about injustice, that they don't do anything about it. Uh, Gandalf warned Frodo against striking without need. That's what the two brothers did. They struck without need. But here we see David striking with need. What they have done is totally evil and God's king cannot and will not tolerate it. He has them executed and to show the shame and the evil of what they've done, chops off their hands and their feet and then hangs their bodies in public view. There's no funeral with all of their friends and family talking about all the wonderful things that they did during their lives. There's no respectful burial. Like Jesus' crucifixion, And like hell itself, at the judgment of the condemned, there's a sense in which everyone is there around you and nobody is there with you. You are totally exposed and utterly alone. David's judgment upon these men is meant to show us how God's king views sin and evil. We live in a world that is deeply apathetic about God's judgment against sin. We think God owes it to us to be nice to us, to give us what we want. We tell him, nobody's perfect. It's your job to forgive me. It's your job to love me. Scenes like this in the Bible are meant to shock us out of our complacency about what's at stake when it comes to living for God or against God, for his kingdom, even if your intentions are good. Now you might think, hearing about all this, this grisly uh, execution type stuff, you might think, well, this is an Old Testament thing. This is something that God's gotten over. Uh, This is something uh, that we have put behind us. Jesus was so nice. Uh, Now we've learned it's all about being pleasant and accepting. But like we've been saying, David is a picture of what Jesus is and would be at a deeper and a truer level. Uh, The New Testament describes Jesus' second coming like this. Uh, It says that he's going to destroy the destroyers of the earth. Somewhere else in the book of Revelation, it says that with a sharp sword, Jesus is going to strike down the nations. At the end of one of Jesus' own parables, from the mouth of Jesus himself, his own words, the character in the parable that represents Jesus himself suddenly appears at the end of the story, and in Jesus' own words, Jesus says that guy is going to cut his servant in pieces and put him with the hypocrites in a place marked by weeping and gnashing of teeth. The same kind of imagery, the same kind of judgment. It's not just something that's in the future. Uh, The book of Jude says that before his incarnation as a human being, in the past, Jesus saved the Israelites from Egypt, but Jude 5 says afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. 
In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus threatens a specific local church in the present right now that if they don't deal with false teachers, he's going to come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. So David is the enraged king carrying out God's judgment on the wicked. It's a good thing. It's a picture of what Jesus not only is going to do at the final judgment, but what Jesus is doing right now in history, what Jesus is doing in his church. God's king is meant to stand up for the weak and the vulnerable and the pitiful. He's fighting against the proud and the murderous and the manipulative. That's a good thing. But that's not all that God's king does. In the first few verses of chapter 5, you see that the enraged king is also the shepherd king. The shepherd king. At the beginning of chapter 5, the tribes of Israel uh, now finally come and bow the knee to David after seven years of civil war. Now listen to what they say to David. Uh, They're out of options. And notice a few things that it teaches us about God's king, particularly his final king, Jesus. Here's what they say to him. They say, Behold, David, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Uh, The first thing you see there about what God's king is like and how he rules uh, is this language of bone and flesh. Uh, You might remember, if you've, you've probably heard this at weddings, there's a verse early on in Genesis where when Adam first meets Eve, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, In the Bible, this is the language of family. Uh, In marriage, you have two unrelated people from two different families now forming one family. Uh, This language of the bone and the flesh is the language of talking about someone being in in your family. Uh, It's a way of saying that God's king is a father and a brother, that he's nurturing and providing for his own subjects like they're his own family. Uh, This is why, if you've ever been confused about this, this is why in Isaiah chapter 9, the the Messiah is called the everlasting father. We sing that sometimes, you know, Handel's Messiah. Uh, Why is the Messiah called the father? This is why. It's a way of saying that he's uh, our family. He takes care of us. He provides for us. It's why and how Jesus can repeatedly refer to his disciples as little children. You ever notice that Jesus calls his disciples kids a lot? Uh, It's what Jesus means in John chapter 14 when he promises the disciples that I will not leave you as orphans. I will be here taking care of you. I will provide for you. I will be like a father to you. The letter to the Hebrews chapter 2 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters and that he became like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he might be a merciful priest on our behalf. He's not only like a father to us, he's our brother. The second thing is that the tribes recognize that God's King David and now King Jesus is God's guide and shepherd for his people. He's a guide and a shepherd. Uh, They say, even when Saul was king, David, it was really you who was leading us out and bringing us in. Uh, This is a, a reference to David's leadership of the military. God's anointed king is fighting his people's battles. He's protecting them and he's enabling them to win. The apostle Paul acknowledges the fearsome power of sin and death. But then he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Elsewhere, Paul rejoices that in the face of all of our suffering and trouble, he says, even in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. He says, there's nothing that will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so what it's saying is that Jesus goes before you. Jesus leads you in and out. He wages war for you and through you. So you should be encouraged. The outcome is certain. 
There's no question about how the battle will shake down in the end. Jesus is your general. He's leading you out. He will take you in. But he's not just a mighty warrior. He's also a skilled shepherd, as the the tribes recognize in David's divine commission. They say, the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. The Old Testament up to this point frequently refers to God as a shepherd. He's protecting and guiding and nourishing his vulnerable flock, the people of Israel. And with David, this is now the first time that you hear about Israel's king being a shepherd. And this language will continue through the rest of the Bible. In Jesus, the divine and the human shepherds converge into one man, as he tells us in John chapter 10. I am the good shepherd. He leads out his people. He calls them by name. They recognize his voice. He gives them abundant life. He protects them from the ravages of wolves and robbers. And most of all, Jesus says, best of all, he lays down his life for the sheep. So he's a father and a brother. He's a leader and a shepherd. And now finally, the tribes of Israel remind us that God's king is to be a subject and a ruler. He's a subject and a ruler. First of all, he's a subject because he's ruling by the pleasure of God himself. The Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd and you shall be prince. There's no question that God's king will do exactly what he's told by God. There's no room for negotiation. He says, whatever you say, I will do it. I will listen. What you say is true. God's king doesn't rule on his own. He doesn't rule according to his own ideas. He does only what God tells him. Jesus said that my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. It's why you can be so confident that Jesus' words and Jesus' ways are what's so good for us. And whatever you're facing, however confusing they might be, however painful they might be. It's what I mean when I say that Jesus is not only, in a sense, a subject under the Father, but also a ruler on behalf of the Father. Because he's speaking and he's doing only what God wants, we should obey him as king. If he's listening to God, if he's speaking what God says, then we should do what Jesus says. We're all tempted to live as kings and queens of our own little domains, but it's actually so much better for us to live as subjects of the world's only truly good king. We need to live under Jesus as Jesus brings us the good word of God and does for us the good works of God. We need to be like the tribes of Israel here. We need to give all of our loyalty to God's king, Jesus. He's perfectly good in his judgments against evil, He's perfectly good in his concern for the weak and the pitiful, even his own enemies. He's perfectly good in his care for all those who have given up their war against him and who now gladly bow the knee to him. He's our brother. He's our shepherd. He's our ruler. Let's follow him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all these wonderful angles on what it means for Jesus to be our king. Some of us uh, this morning need to be reminded that he's our shepherd, that he's providing for us and protecting us. Some of us need to be reminded this morning that he's our brother. He's compassionate. He knows us. He's like us. Some of us need to know this morning that he's enraged by evil and injustice. He's been committed against us, being committed by us. Show us whatever we need to know about Jesus so that we might submit to him, so that we might see his goodness, so that we might hate our sin, so that we might live for you, Lord. We pray in his name. Amen.